the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. All through this Gospel, John is driving us toward belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, the whole second chapter of John. And let's remember as we hear this, this is God's word. It's John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I wonder um, if you have ever asked God for a sign and thought, you know, if God would just give me this one thing, I would for sure know that he was real and I would believe in him and that would be enough. If I just got this sign... I would believe in him. I've spoken with a lot of people who aren't Christians, some people who are experiencing some disruption in their faith, going through a difficult time. I've been there myself where, where I have heard this phrase repeated. You know, if God would just give me this sign, if he would just do this thing, then I would definitely believe in him or I would know for sure that he loves me. I would know certainly that he's there. I would know beyond a doubt that he hears me. If I would just give me a sign, I'm guessing that that's happened to many of us. I'm also guessing most of us know DMX's song, Lord, Give Me a Sign. That's actually a joke. I know we're not all that familiar with early 2000s hip-hop culture within this church, but DMX has this song, Lord, Give Me a Sign, and the constant refrain is just that. The song sort of intros with DMX calling that out at the end of every verse, at the end of each chorus. That's the repeated phrase, Lord, Give Me a Sign. And, um, I think that it, it might have been Rolling Stone that noted that in that song, the full display of DMX's passion and rawness and pure emotional honesty are on display with that cry. Lord, give me a sign. If only I had a sign, then I'd believe. Maybe that's you. Maybe it has been you. Maybe it will be you at some point in the future. It's been me in the past. If you just give me a sign, I would believe. Well... For anyone who's looking for a sign, the Gospel of John chapter 2 gives to us signs, two of them, two major ones that we should not miss. And as we start this chapter, I just want to point out the repetition of that word in the Gospel of John. I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2 again. Now, if you have your, your journaling Gospel of John, that's great. I'll point it out to you. If you don't have it, we have them on the info table. I'd love for you to grab it at the end of the service and you know make use of it throughout the, the, the series. But if you just take a look with me at John chapter 2, verse. let me read to you three verses. The first is verse 11 of John chapter 2. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Then let me read verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Then let me read to you verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So sign, 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 everywhere a sign. And if you have, you know, a pen and you've got one of these journaling Bibles, just underline or circle or put a box around that word signs three times. It's repeated. We should not miss the fact that that repetition is directing us in a certain sort of place. John chapter two is giving us the signs that we should look to. And if this morning you're hoping for a sign from God, let me tell you, there are two major ones for you in John chapter two. And the signs come through a wedding sign and a funeral sign. A wedding sign and a funeral sign. So let's take a look at both of those in our time together this morning. 
First, a wedding sign. Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding at Cana in Galilee along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's very likely that this was a relative who invited them to their wedding. Jesus was not well known as a teacher or a miracle worker at this point. This is the first miracle that he's done. So Jesus doesn't have the wide-ranging fame that he will have as he continues on through the Gospel of John. As he moves on through the Gospel of John, we'll see many crowds gathering around him because they want his teaching and his miracles. But at this point, it's just five disciples who would decided they were going to follow after him who come along with him and along with his mom to a wedding probably of a relative. And something embarrassing happens at this wedding. The wedding party runs out of wine. This would have been a socially embarrassing thing, particularly so at this time. If you ran out of wine, the groom's family was the family that would throw the party. And if you ran out of wine, the bride's family could actually sue you because you didn't have enough wine at this particular party. It was an embarrassing thing, a deeply socially embarrassing thing to run out of wine at a party. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, more from Pastor Derek in our series called We Believe. Focusing on the Gospel of John, we pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But Tim Keller notes something that I think is worth making note of, that this is uh, likely another indication of just how reliable the Bible is. The fact that Jesus begins his ministry with a, a miracle to just save a family member from some social embarrassment indicates how reliable this is. In most mythological tellings of a hero... It starts out, the first big sign that's done is just this grandiose, huge, archetypal sign about the nature of this particular person. And when it's Jesus, it's a miracle to save a relative from some social embarrassment. Keller says that that's likely an indication that this is just a true Narrative, And it is a true narrative. But, but back to the story, Mary realizes that the right person to go to is Jesus. She turns to her son. In an expectation, she say, says that they're out of wine. Jesus understands that Mary is, um, is not coming to him just to gossip about it. She's not just coming to complain to Jesus. Oh, great, another party where they run out of wine, Jesus. Can you believe it? No, Jesus recognizes that Mary is doing something else, that she's asking him to solve this problem. As the mother of Jesus, Mary had received word from an angel about who Jesus was, and so she was aware of his nature. She had experienced the, miracle, the, the miracle of John leaping in Elizabeth's womb when Mary, as, as she was carrying Jesus, just came into her, the presence of her relative Elizabeth. Mary had been there taking Jesus to the temple when the prophetic word from Simeon and Anna had been delivered over the Lord Jesus. So she's aware of who she's at the wedding with, not just her son, but the one that the angel had told her about. This is God. So she says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus tells her that his hour had not yet come. Throughout the gospel, Jesus uses this phrase, my hour. And every time Jesus uses this phrase, my hour has not yet come or my hour is approaching, it's always with reference to something specifically. It's always with reference to the cross. 
Now, it can be a little bit more broad than that. It can be the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection, his glorification, but it's always centered on the reality of Jesus at the cross. And so when Mary says they're out of wine, Jesus says, my hour's not yet come to his mother. And that doesn't seem to make sense. Why is Jesus talking about the cross when Mary asks him about the wine? Now, there are many people who, for a living draw out the meaning of a text smarter than me, wiser than me, and nobody can agree on exactly why Jesus might be saying this. Some of them say, well, this just might be a a literary feature that John wants to quote something that Jesus said because he's starting to to just give to us a picture of the fact that this gospel is going to crescendo in Christ going to the cross for us. And that may be why John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, highlights that. It may be. Others say... That Jesus was going to, at the very end, take wine and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so that there are tie-ins from the very beginning of the Gospel of John to the fact that Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper with wine, which will speak of his blood. And so maybe that's why he was referencing the cross, because of wine in particular. It may have been that it may have been an Old Testament reason. So The Messiah in the Old Testament, part of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah is that the Messiah is going to be the one that brings wine in abundance to the people of Israel. And Jesus is going to do that. At the marriage feast of the Lamb, there's going to be an abundance of wine. And it may be that Jesus is saying, you know, it's not time for that yet. It's not time for my death and resurrection and glorification. It's not time for the marriage feast where there will be wine in abundance. It may have been that Jesus recognized that this first miracle would begin the earthly ministry that would end at the cross. But his first reaction is that it's not his hour. But Jesus is an obedient son. And he listens to his mother. And he performs the miracle. And the miracle that he performs is amazing. Gallons and gallons of the best wine that astounds the master of the feast. You've kept, he says, you've kept the hundred point wine for when people have already drunk freely gallons and gallons of it. An overabundance of the best wine. Now this miracle can sometimes make us uncomfortable. I remember when I was in college talking to a fellow college student about all of this. We were in a group of people and she was talking about how she would never drink alcohol. And another one of our friends was like, well, what about when Jesus changed water into wine? And there was an uncomfortable pause for a little bit of time. And she said, well, I acknowledge that he did that, but I really wish that he had it. (laughs) Which I thought was just a great response to that miracle. And the reality is that sometimes we can be uncomfortable with alcohol because we've seen abuses of alcohol. Sometimes we've seen people who have abused it and have drunk to the point of drunkenness. And the the scriptures tell us not to get drunk. That actually if we're filled up with wine to the point of intoxication, that we can't be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, says the scripture. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's important to recognize and name that, that some people have experienced difficulty because of alcohol, but the scripture also uh, indicates to us and gives to us that, that it's not the alcohol that's the issue, it's the abuse of it that's the issue. That wine in scripture is a part of a good feast, a good celebration, and that its use is sometimes commanded. And that as Jesus changes water into wine so that the the partiers at this particular wedding can drink it and enjoy it, that this is a good thing. Don't get drunk on wine, but make use of it in a responsible way as a part of celebration and joy. 
This miracle demonstrates for us the fact that the Lord Jesus promises us a wedding feast with the best food and the best drink and the best company and the best host. You know, the Christian life in this world that's passing away often has much sorrow. That's a part of all of it. There's sorrow in, sin, in, in this sinful, broken world. But this Christian life is also a life of rejoicing and feasting and remembrance that Jesus is going to prepare a feast for us and the wine is going to be spectacular at that time as we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb and the fact that Christ's bride will be with him forever and ever and ever. And this is a cause for rejoicing and celebration. And know that this is a sign. Verse 11 says that this is the first sign that Jesus did and that his disciples saw the sign and they believed in him. The disciples saw the sign and they believed in him. That, that just seeing that Jesus performed this miracle led to belief on the part of the disciples in the Lord Jesus. And this makes sense. Because what Jesus did was, was truly miraculous. He was able to change the, the molecular structure of water to the point that it became wine. Which means he was able to create. He was able to take something and make something new out of all of it. You would never be able to do this. You'd never be able to do this. It doesn't matter how many times you take water and pour it or try to serve it to somebody. You're not going to turn it into wine. This is just, as an, as an aside, this is just one of the reasons that, you know, I, I, do you remember those bracelets that used to be popular, say WWJD, it meant what would Jesus do? Now that's good up to a point, but you have to realize you can't do everything that Jesus has done. Now if you read this story and you're like, well, what would Jesus do? It can't be, well, you know, I better try to turn some water into wine. It shouldn't, I mean, it's, it's not that you take this and you'd be like, all right, so that means every time I go to a wedding, I better bring some wine. You ask somebody, you're like, hey, do you have plans for wine at the wedding? And they're like, no, but I invited a bunch of Christians, so I'm going to have enough wine at this wedding. It's going to be fine. That's not, how, that's not what you derive from this particular story. But what you, can, what you can take is that Jesus has the ability to do this, which shows that he is, he is the creator. You can't create wine out of water. Jesus can. He's the creator. And right away at the beginning of John, we have this beautiful prologue that tells us that Jesus was in the beginning with God and he was God and that through him all things were made. And John chapter 1, which says that in the prologue, is demonstrated right away in John chapter 2. Jesus is showing that he is the creator, therefore he is God. That's what this sign is pointing to. His disciples get it and they believe in Jesus. He can create. I need to believe in him. It's beautiful. And this is a sign for you too. Jesus, when he came to earth, did miracles of the creation sort. And only God can do that. And so just like the disciples, you should believe too. But there's another sign that Jesus gives, and it's an even better one. The second sign that he gives to us is an even better one. And that second sign is a funeral sign. And he gives it in the context of this cleansing of the temple. And so John chapter 2 moves from the, uh, the turning of water into wine into Jesus going to the Passover in Jerusalem. 
And in the temple, he sees people trying to profit within the temple. And so he decides that he will drive out those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, drive out the money changers sitting there. He makes a whip of cords. He drives them out of the temple. And he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There are a couple things that merit being said here. The first is that the picture of Jesus that the gospels give to us is fully orbed. And it's wonderful because of all of that. I remember when I was first introduced to the Jesus film, I was a young child, I was able to stay up late to watch the Jesus film on television. It was very exciting to me. And I remember the Jesus in that he was always sort of gliding around, always making these very serene pronouncements. He was never upset. That impacted my own understanding of who Jesus was. And the Bible sometimes needs to come and correct our thinking. Now, Jesus is gentle and lowly to be sure. He's the Prince of Peace. But the peace that Jesus brings and operates is not opposed to Jesus very aggressively clearing out the temple of all manner of false things that were corrupting the worship of God. Here you can see that Jesus really was a carpenter who's able to twist together these cords to form a whip and would have the presence and authority to drive all these people from the temple. This is not just, this is not just a, I don't know the right way to put it. This is not a weakling. This is a real carpenter with real authority who really is the God-man. And it's awesome. And the Bible will always correct the way that we think incorrectly about who God is. And as Jesus puts together this whip of cords and drives people out of the temple, it's a compelling reminder of the fact that he is truly God and truly man. And it's awesome. Here's the other thing. As I read this chapter of scripture, I, I, was, um, I was convicted. I felt some conviction, and this is, this is why. Is the Bible, John chapter 2 draws out the fact that, that Jesus is zealous for cleansing the temple and for right worship in the house of God. And, and as I read that, I thought, man, are there ways that I am um, in my own mind or heart, or actions, are there ways that I am corrupting the right worship of God? Because I don't want that, because Jesus is zealous for right worship. I know that there are ways that right worship is sometimes corrupted. I mean, we live in a consumer age, and all of us, every single one of us that has grown up in this context, we've all had our souls formed by a consumer culture, and so every one of us is going to have the inclination that's natural. It's not because of anything that we could have possibly done, but because we're a part of a consumer culture, every one of us is going to have the inclination that worship should be about you know, meeting my needs and me being comfortable. That's going to be my default because that's the way my soul's been formed. Sometimes you might experience um, maybe more direct examples of that. I remember I was talking once to a, a, a member of uh, another church, and, um, and she was talking about how she had gone to a church that was just a concert. It was just a classical music concert. She's like, and you know what? I would just really like for worship to be like that. I would like for, for us to come and for it to just be a classical music concert Nothing uncomfortable about that. Nothing that would offend anybody. It was just, it was just nice to go and listen to classical music and, and then to just go home. And I wish that that's what church could be. And I remember as a young seminary student being like, that's wrong. That's not what worship is about. It's not about us coming to just have a concert so that we feel nice and then we can go home. That's wrong. 
And so that was one of the times where I could see it clearly in other people. But as I read this, I was like, it was, it was not just, oh, oh God, can you just fix all of those people out there that have all manner of messed up worship? No, what I wanted was, I, I, and I've prayed this this week, and I want to invite you to do the same thing. I was like, God, would you just reveal to me places that I'm messing it up, places that I'm corrupting your worship? Can you just reveal to me and cleanse all of those places where I have it wrong because I know how I am prone to wander. I know how my soul has been formed. I know that I want to honor you. And so I know that you need to, you need to cleanse God wherever I have it wrong. Just, just cleanse it. Drive out whatever stands in the way of worshiping you. Be zealous for it, God. Be zealous for it, Jesus, in my own life, in my own worship. And then Jesus says something that that should speak to us about what the the center of worship should be. It's important for us not to miss this. So Jesus doesn't cleanse the temple and then say, now the style of worship that everyone should have is jazz or something like that, right? Jesus doesn't cleanse the temple and then give us a style of worship. He doesn't give to you the style within which we are supposed to meet him, but he does tell us the way that worship should be taking place. Do you see the way that he does it? He gets asked for a sign. People, I think, are pretty reasonable. Jesus has just driven people out of the temple and people are like, well, what sign are you going to give us to show us that you, you should do this? And he's like, well, you destroy the temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. And thankfully, John helps us to understand what that means. Let me read for you verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign? There's that second Jesus sign. Do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is amazing. Jesus says, all right, I've cleansed the temple. Do you want to know what the real temple is? The real temple is my body. Now that is an incredible claim. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook, Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, may God bless you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.